we are very privileged today to have a special guest with us who is part, uh, actually more than part, he is the Vice President and Director of Chosen People Ministries, just came back from a trip to Washington State, and we're delighted that Dr. Richard Freeman from Chosen People Ministries can be here with us today to take us through this Seder, this Passover meal, and help us understand more fully what it was that our Savior did in sacrificing himself for us. Good morning. As uh, Pastor Brian shared with you, my name is Rich Freeman, and uh, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Anybody from Brooklyn? All right. How you doing? Now, normally when, uh, when I say I'm from a Jewish background, I get this funny look, so I know what you're all thinking, and we probably need to get it out of the way. You're thinking, that is the biggest Jewish person I've ever seen in my life. And if you are, I get that a lot. Not a problem. Uh, is my wife here? Well, there she is. This is my wife, Julia. And Julia is uh, Italian, born in, outside of Rome, Italy, and came to the United States when she was a very little girl and grew up in the Bronx. Anybody from the Bronx? I pity you. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Brooklyn and the Bronx really kind of uh, were... were uh, it's the Yankees and the, and the Dodgers, actually, and, and we usually lost. But uh, she grew up in an Italian Catholic home, and uh, I remember very distinctly this, this year we're going to be married 40 years. So praise God for that. But I remember very distinctly the first time I was at my wife's house on this particular Sunday, Palm Sunday. And uh, if any of you come from a Catholic background, you know how important that is to Catholics and I remember my, my father-in-law, future father-in-law at that point, uh, giving me this big palm that, that was kind of formed in the sign of a cross. Here I am, this Jewish kid, and he hands me this thing and says with his broken English, Happy Palm Sunday. And I looked at it. I, I, I said to my girlfriend at the time, what am I supposed to do with this? And she says, just hold it and stay quiet and say thank you. And I took it, and, and that, was the, that was the focus of the day, was the palms. But uh, as we just read from Exodus 6, there is an amazing, amazing parallel between the first Passover and that Passover lamb and our Passover, Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And let me share with you, uh, just looking at the, the Hebrew calendar, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it is the ninth day of the month of Nisan. He enters Jerusalem presenting himself as the King Messiah. He rode on the colt of a donkey, make no mistake about it. He took the prophecy from Zechariah, Behold, daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. Humble, lowly, riding on the colt of a donkey. And everybody in Jerusalem knew what he was doing. Because what did they cry out? Hosanna! Lord, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the Son of David. They were recognizing that Jesus was presenting them, presenting himself to them, I should say, as the King Messiah. And all of those palms 
go back to Zechariah 14 when it says, when the king comes, the one holiday that everybody would celebrate was the Feast of Tabernacles. And what did we do on the Feast of Tabernacles? We built the tabernacles, including palm branches. So all of that was tied together. That night, that night was the 10th day of the month of Nisan. As Pastor read, that was when the lamb is brought into the household, into the community. So try to imagine, try to imagine a house with little children, probably lots of little children. And suddenly the door opens up and this lamb comes marching in. What are the kids going to do? They're going to start playing with it. Everybody's going to interact with that little lamb that's part of the community now. And let's give it a name. Let's call it Fluffy. And as they play with the lamb and interact with the lamb, the papa, the father, the head of that little household, that little community, has a very important job. You heard Pastor Reed that the lamb has to be blameless, without spot or blemish. No imperfections whatsoever. So what happens is the papas watch the lambs very carefully to make sure there's no imperfections. And after four days... When it's determined that the lamb has no imperfections, the head of that little community, the papa, makes a pronouncement. The lamb is worthy to be slain. And they take all of the lambs together, slay them as one. And then the blood of the lamb for each household is captured in a bowl. And it's brought back to be placed in the bottom of the door as a catch basin. And that's really part of this Passover story that I'm going to be telling you uh, this morning. This is one of my favorite things to do. We call this Messiah in the Passover because what you're going to see, and this is a very traditional Jewish Passover table, the same elements with a little variation uh, are on every Passover table all around the world. How many of you have ever experienced uh, this particular presentation? Let me see that. A few of you. Most of you haven't. That's great. How many of you have ever been invited to a traditional Jewish Passover? It's interesting. The same people. So it's a little different, and we're going to share how the Passover today and the Last Supper are connected. In fact, when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, it was a Passover meal that he was celebrating. How many of you are familiar with the painting, The Last Supper by Da Vinci? It's a great painting, beautiful work of art. But please understand, it's not biblically accurate. It is the perspective of the Last Supper from an Italian Catholic living in the 15th century. And da Vinci not only brings some of his Italian culture into the painting, he also shows us a little bit of his Catholic theology, and I'll explain to you in a moment. Remember the painting? They were all seated on chairs Obviously, the biggest chair reserved for Jesus. He was seated, seated in the middle, and they were all very Italian-looking. You ever, you ever notice that? I mean, Jesus kind of looks like Al Pacino in the movie Serpico. <laughs> Remember that movie, little scruffy beard, longish hair, very Italian features. That was how da Vinci painted him, very Italian. Da Vinci used a friend to pose for each of the disciples and for Jesus, except for one. 
a little guy with beady eyes and an exaggerated big nose next to Jesus, looking up at him, obviously up to no good. Who was that? That was Judas, the Jewish disciple. I want that to sink in for a minute. See, they were all Jewish. This was the Jewish Passover, and Jesus was Jewish. And maybe that doesn't sound like some great theology, uh, you know, a, a great revelation, but growing up in Brooklyn, I assumed Jesus was Italian. I mean, the only people I knew that, that worshipped Jesus were Italians. I, I lived in a neighborhood where you were either Jewish or Italian, so the Italians worshipped Jesus, and we didn't. And that was sort of the, the uh, you know, the border. He's for them. And we kind of shied away from it. The last thing in the world that I ever conceived of was that Jesus was one of us because nobody ever tell, told me otherwise. So celebrating Passover was never connected to Jesus, and yet that's exactly what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper. And all of these elements we're, we're, seeing, we're going to see are pointing to him. Uh, if, if you remember the painting, behind Da Vinci was a window. Uh, behind Jesus was a window that Da Vinci painted. And the window was painted daylight. Even though we read on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. The Jewish day always begins the night before. So why would Da Vinci paint it as, day, as daylight if the Last Supper was at night? And the answer is because he's Italian. When do Italians have their big meal? At midday. Midday. That's the big meal. Then they sleep in the afternoon, and very late at night they have a lighter meal. So from da Vinci's perspective, if this was a bunch of Italians having a meal together, well, why not have it at daytime? And from da Vinci's perspective, that would have been on Friday afternoon. Friday would be Good Friday. Da Vinci being Catholic thinks, well, they wouldn't have had meat on Good Friday. I mean, who was a better Catholic than Jesus? That's supposed to be funny. I'll let that come. <laughs> so what do you suppose da Vinci paints on the table as the main course? He painted fish. And not only did he paint fish, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he painted Italian bread next to the fish. <laughs> so, again, if, if you have it in your house, it's a beautiful work of art, you know. Uh, but it's not biblically accurate. In fact, could you guys see the pillows on the side of the table? They're not there so when I get tired I could let rest. But rather to show you that instead of seated on chairs, they were on the floor reclining. And we'll see that in a moment. And not only was the table on the floor, it was three-sided. They would have used what's called a triclinium, a three-sided table reclining on the floor. And the table would have been arranged so that this first spot here on the right side would have been closest to the door so that the host could get up and greet his guests. Now, obviously, Jesus was the host at the Last Supper. But we're going to see Jesus wasn't in the first spot. That was John. In the next spot was Jesus. And next to Jesus, I believe, was Judas. And we'll see why in a moment. We don't know these others. And we don't know the first two, but the last one, 
And it would have been three and three and then everybody on, on the long side. The last one directly opposite where I believe John was, I think that was Peter. And you'll see why from the scriptures in a moment. So on the floor reclining. And that's important because on the table would have been a basin, a pitcher of water. The water poured into the basin. And the tradition is to wash your hands according to the law of Moses. But Jesus did something different at the Last Supper. What did he do? What did he do? He washed their feet. Now, it's important for us to visualize what that would have looked like because the painting with them seated on chairs tells us people seated on a chair, they stick their foot up, and Jesus kind of kneels a little bit, washes their feet. That's not how it would have looked. See, they're on the floor, left elbow in, feet sticking straight out, eating with their right hand. Jesus girded himself, took on the role of the lowest house slave, wrapped a towel around his waist, got down on his hands and knees, and began washing everybody's feet. And as he did that, he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. And he used this act of self-sacrificial love to show how we're to treat one another. It's an amazing moment. And one of the things that I think we, we don't realize is it's likely that Jesus washed Judas's feet. What do you suppose that moment was like? Jesus on his hands and knees, and I always picture Jesus with a big smile on his face, looking right literally into Judas's soul, knowing exactly what he was up to. Judas had to have been a tormented person that night. But Judas was at the Passover. He was part of this celebration, and we'll see exactly where that all fits together. So we're going to begin, and the first thing that takes place is the lighting of the candles. And there's a traditional Hebrew prayer on, I will be praying in Hebrew and translating it for you into English throughout the presentation. And the very first prayer is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotzov Ve'tivanu Lahadlik Ner Shel Pesach. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us and commanded us concerning the lighting of the Passover lights. Everyone say amen. And as these lights burn, let it be a reminder to you. Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. And we as his followers, wherever we go, should be lights to a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. Amen. So as these candles burn, let it be a reminder to you. And please pray that my voice lasts the whole presentation. In front here is four cups. On the table would have been one cup taken four times. We'd like to do it this way so that you understand each time the cup is taken, it has different significance and meaning. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification. The word to sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. It's what sets apart the meal. It's what begins the meal. Sometimes it's called the Kiddush cup from the Hebrew word for holy. Second cup is called the cup of judgment. The cup of judgment, a reminder of God's judgment in the form of the ten plagues upon Egypt. The third cup is taken after the meal. The Passover is actually divided into three parts. 
The first part, the longest part, is ceremonial. The second part is an actual meal that the disciples would have had together from soup to dessert. And after the meal, a shorter ceremonial part. And you'll see that's where we get communion from. So that's what's going on here. And I'm going to take the first cup. Jesus would have recited a traditional Hebrew prayer, which is Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Puri HaGofen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everyone say amen. And we take the first cup. Now, typically there's a plate on the table called a Seder plate, and all the elements are contained in the Seder plate. Seder plates can be expensive fine china. I've seen them in Israel for thousands of dollars, and I've been to churches where the children's Sunday school class makes a Seder plate out of styrofoam. They both work. What we've done is kind of put all of the elements on the table for you so you could glance at them and see exactly what they are. And the first element that we're going to take is some parsley. The parsley represents something called the hyssop plant. The hyssop plant was very important to the Israelites. It's how they applied the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house. And if you remember the story, God told Moses to tell the children of Israel to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death saw the blood, what would he do? Pass over that house. That's where the name Passover comes from. But it's a picture, if you will, of salvation by the blood of the lamb. Without the lamb's blood, nobody in that house is saved from that last plague, which was death, the death of the firstborn. So they had to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And I've already explained that the blood of the lamb would have been contained in a bowl placed at the bottom of the door as a catch basin. And the reason for that, as you place the blood on the door, what's going to happen? It's going to drip down. So if you would follow along with me. This is Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. (coughs) And we're going to read the very specific way the children of Israel were told to place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Now, the hyssop plant had a long stem and kind of a brush-like ending to it, almost like a natural paintbrush. And we read this, You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin. Now, I've been doing this for a number of years, almost 30 years. And this morning, as we were getting ready to leave, I said to my wife, something just popped in my head that I'd never seen before. And I went and looked at my computer, pastor, and I found the Septuagint for this particular passage. And the Greek word for dip is connected to the same word that we get baptized from. And I'd never seen that before. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, which is in the basin. And then we read this. And, you know, the New King James, the King James, I think, gets this very right. The word there is strike the lintel, almost like a hammer blow on a nail. Strike the lintel and the two doorposts. So follow what they were told to do. Here's the doorframe, right? Imagine the doorframe and the bowl, the catch basin on the bottom. Dip it in the basin, strike the lintel and the two doorposts. And what did I just do? I made a cross. 
Now, this is instructions given to the children of Israel at the first Passover, at the time of Moses, 15 centuries before Jesus walked on the earth. They were not only given the means of their salvation, the blood of the Lamb, they were given the fulfillment, which would be when Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible tells us He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what the parsley represents, the hyssop plant. Next to the parsley is some salted water. And the salt water represents two things. First, it represents the tears that the children of Israel cried out to God as slaves in Egypt. And if you've ever tasted your tears, your tears are salty. But it also represents a great miracle that happened at the Red Sea, which is a salt sea. And everybody should be familiar with this miracle. What is it? when the Red Sea was parted. And typically, our visual of that is the movie The Ten Commandments, the one with Charlton Heston, and I'm sure it's going to be on TV sometime this week. And how many of you have seen it at least twice? Probably more than that. And it's a great movie. The particular scene for the parting of the Red Sea is considered one of the ten greatest events in cinema history. It was made in the 1950s almost 60 years ago. And as Cecil B. DeMille, the one who made the movie, put it all together, he hired 20,000 extras just for that scene. And you remember the scene, the sea is parted, and all of the Israelites cross the sea, get to the other side. The army of Pharaoh comes in after them, but they never reach them. What happens? The water comes back, And we sing the song, The Horse and Rider Thrown into the Sea. It's a great, great scene, but it doesn't do justice to the miracle. And here's what I mean. Later on, Moses is told in the book of Numbers to count his fighting men, men over the age of 20. And he counts those fighting men, and they number 600,000. 600,000 men, 20 or over. If we estimate that those men had wives and children, then the amount of Israelites that crossed the sea overnight, and the Bible tells us it was overnight, wasn't 20,000, wasn't even 120,000. It was perhaps two, maybe as many as three million people that crossed the sea overnight. For that many people to cross in that short amount of time, the sea wasn't opened up a dozen wide maybe, as DeMille portrayed, but miles across. God literally removed the sea from in front of the Israelites. They crossed the sea on dry ground, got to the other side. The army of Pharaoh tried catching them and never made it. The water came back, wiped out the strongest army at the time in the world. And the interesting thing, in biblical archaeological review, If you've ever read that, it's an interesting magazine. Every once in a while you read an article about an expedition doing archaeology at the bottom of the Red Sea. And guess what they find? Pieces of chariot. It's a great miracle, and that's what the salted water represents. So everybody at the table, and this is still done to this very day, will take a piece of parsley, dip it in the salted water, and a prayer would be recited. And that prayer is, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, 
Borei Puri Ha'adama. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the earth. They dipped the parsley in the salted water, and everybody would eat. Leaves you with fresh breath. Now, for this next element, I'm going to come out so you can see it a little better. This is called a matzotash. Matzotash. It means matzah pocket. And this is on every Passover table around the world. This is a traditional part of the Passover. Uh, matzotash, matzah pocket. It kind of looks like a pillow without the stuffing. You can see there's some Hebrew writing on this. But what's unusual about it, and why I wanted to come out to show you, is inside there are three compartments. Did everybody see that? So this is one matzotash with three compartments. It is, in effect, a three-in-one unity. Does that remind you of anything? Well, obviously, for those of us who believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a three-in-one unity, we might say that this can be a picture of the Godhead. In a moment, you're going to see that's exactly what it's intended to be. At a traditional Jewish Passover, the explanation would be different. This represents the patriarchs. The patriarchs from the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, three patriarchs, one matzotash. And you might say, well, I guess that's a plausible explanation. Except for what happens next, because what happens next is the middle piece is taken out. Not the first, not the third, but the middle piece. So this is the second of the three and one that's taken out. I want you to notice a few things about uh, this unleavened bread. First, it's unleavened. This is matzah. Matzah is made without any yeast, without any leaven. Leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. So the fact that this is unleavened is a picture of sinlessness. It is completely flat. And the reason it is, is as the dough is laid out, it's pierced. Now, you can see that this is made with machine. But at the time of Jesus, they would have had this very neat kitchen utensil where they would have strapped on to the person's hand making the, the matzah. And it had spikes. And they would have pounded it with those spikes to make sure that it stayed flat. When it's cooked or baked on a hot surface, because it's not quite even, it has different colorations that kind of resemble stripes. So think of the prophecy. This is from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah wrote this prophecy about seven centuries before Jesus walked on the earth. He said he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This second of the three in one, unleavened, representing sinlessness, striped and pierced, is clearly intended to be a picture of Jesus. And what happens next, I think, confirms it. We break it. One piece is left out. The other piece is wrapped in a linen napkin. And again, this is done at every Jewish, Jewish home today as they celebrate Passover. We wrap it in a linen napkin, sort of like a burial cloth. And then it's hidden away. It's buried. And that will be brought back after supper. Resurrected, if you will. 
That's the afikoman. The afikoman is called the bread of affliction. And earlier in Isaiah 53, that amazing passage, we read that he was afflicted. But also, in a traditional Jewish Passover, it's said to be the dessert, the very last thing that's eaten. And we'll see that's the last thing that's going to be eaten at the Passover. That is a key element. That's what we remember when we celebrate communion. That's the piece of bread that Jesus says, this is my body. And that, that's the afikoman. We come next to the second cup. The second cup is the cup of judgment. And the cup of judgment, a reminder of God's judgment in the form of the ten plagues upon Egypt. If you remember the story, God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and say what? Let my people go. Very good. Pharaoh refused. God brings a plague upon the Egyptians, beginning with turning the Nile River into blood. Pharaoh goes to Moses, says, if you stop the plague, I'll let the people go. Moses prays to God. The plague is stopped. Pharaoh changes his mind. New plague. It keeps happening. You almost suspect that God is up in heaven saying, what do I need to do to make this guy stop doing that? But that's not what's going on, is it? Because in the middle of that biblical narrative, we read God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? Does it mean that God forced him to do something he wasn't going to do anyway? Of course not. But God used the hard heart of Pharaoh to bring glory to himself. Because, you see, the lesson for the Egyptians was that the God of Israel was the one true God. All the plagues were intended to vanquish the gods of the Egyptians, beginning with the Nile River that they worshipped as a god. And that was turned to blood. All those other plagues were against all the gods of the Egyptians and ended up with the chief god of the Egyptians, the last two plagues. He was Ra, the sun god. And he was known by two names. First, he was called the god of light. Next to the last plague was total darkness. And he was also called the god of life. The last plague, the death of the firstborn. So that when the Egyptians lost their firstborn, they cried out to Ra to restore the life of their loved one. And when Ra was unable to do that, they understood the lesson that the God of Israel was the one true almighty God. They were so afraid of the Israelites because of their God. Not only did they plead with Pharaoh to let them go, they paid them to go. They had the treasury of Egypt when they left. And that fulfilled the prophecy that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. Then they will be delivered with many possessions. That's what we remember with the second cup. Jesus would have recited the traditional Hebrew prayer after telling that story. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everybody say amen. And we take the second cup. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is John's account of the Last Supper. And we come now 
to an interesting part of the Passover. And it's here that Jesus makes a statement that absolutely shocks the disciples. This is the end of verse 21. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is where the betrayal is announced. Now, John, in his gospel, very often will write parenthetical statements to help us understand what's being said. Sometimes about Judas, that Judas was the traitor. But not here. Interestingly enough, instead, he writes that the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. They couldn't imagine that any one of them would have betrayed Jesus. It's unimaginable. So we read next, very interestingly, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, on his chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, you realize that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is John leaning against Jesus. Now, if they were seated on chairs as Da Vinci portrayed them, this would be a weird-looking scene. Just to show you what I mean, if you're sitting next to your spouse, ladies, put your head on their chest. Very romantic. Two guys from Israel, a little weird, don't you think? So what's going on? Again, they're on the floor reclining. And you remember in the beginning I said John was here? Well, John is now leaning back, and he's leaning back against Jesus to brace himself. That's all he's doing. And on the other side, the person with the best view of that is Peter. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Here's what I think is going through Peter's mind. A betrayal, huh? Well, I know it's not me. So I need to find out who it is. And when I do, I'll stop it by killing them. If you don't think Peter was capable of that, what happens later on when the mob comes to take Jesus away? He slices off the guy's ear like he was filleting a fish with a very sharp, short-edged sword that he would have kept as a means of defense. Peter was absolutely capable of killing somebody. And at this point in time, this is before the denials, Peter was ready to fight to the death for Jesus. So, he sees John leaning against Jesus. And Peter's thinking, man, those guys are tight. It couldn't be John. So what does he do? Very interesting. It says, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to John, to ask who it was of whom Jesus spoke. Ever read that and wonder what that, may, what that means? I kind of picture Peter trying to get John to understand he doesn't want the other guys to, to hear him, that he needs to find out who it is. So he plays this little game of, of hand motions, like charades. And he's pointing to Jesus, and John figures out those motions and turns to Jesus. And, and we read, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So John figured out what Peter wanted and pointedly asked Jesus, who's the betrayer? Jesus doesn't turn to John and say, what's wrong with you people? 
Haven't you figured it out yet that it's Judas? He doesn't do that. Instead, we read this. And this is very interesting. He says, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, if you don't know that this is a Passover, this can mean almost anything. And i got to be honest with you, I've read some commentators on the Gospel of John that absolutely have no idea what this is about and really kind of come up with some idea that, that makes no sense. It's actually quite simple. During the Passover, the unleavened bread is dipped two times. One in bitter, one in sweet. Jesus is using this as a time of teaching. Typically, the bitter herbs represent the bitterness that the children of Israel experience in bondage to Egypt. But now, he's using it to reveal his betrayer. Someone that he loved and trusted was about to betray him. And that would bring bitterness to his heart. And if you've ever been betrayed by someone that you loved and trusted, you know how hard that can be. Be encouraged, so does Jesus. So what does he do? He dips it in the bitter mixture. And we read this. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. It doesn't say he got up and gave it to him, but rather he gave it to him. What is the implication? He's right next to him. Why would he do that? I think there's two things going on. Number one, Judas was the only one of the 12 who's not a Galilean. He's from Judea. And there was rivalry. So in his teaching to love one another, he wanted them to understand that. But secondly, and I think this is the main reason, this is an opportunity for Judas not to go through with it. He's giving him one last chance. And instead of refusing and saying no, Judas takes the bread and it opens up a whole can of worms here because look at what happens. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Who invited Satan? Do you remember the movie that Mel Gibson did, The Passion of the Christ? He did a really good job kind of showing Satan, kind of hovering around in the spirit realm, just keeping an eye on things. Anytime something spiritually significant is going on in the Scripture, you always see Satan. Notice that? And what could be more significant than Jesus about to be going to the cross? Here's the thing, though. Satan thinks that if he could kill Jesus, he wins. He never figured out the resurrection. So as he enters Judas, he's about to take Judas to betray Jesus, come back, take Jesus away with the mob, and eventually take him to the cross. Which certainly shows that Satan's not all-knowing. And then there's some interesting dialogue, and I want you to follow it carefully. So we read, having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Who was Jesus speaking to? I always thought it was Judas until recently. Just follow the rules of English grammar. 
There's a personal pronoun here. Jesus said to him. Who's the him? Well, you have to look at what's called the antecedent, the last person spoken of. The last person spoken of and named wasn't Judas, but Satan. For your consideration, Jesus sees Satan enter Judas and looks directly at him when he says, what you do too quickly. And nobody else would have seen it, so Jesus, in in essence, is speaking to both of them at the same time. But I believe Satan's involved here, and Jesus is speaking to him when he says, what you do too quickly. Judas leaves, and we read later on that they're kind of clueless as to why he left, maybe to buy more food. We won't see Judas again until he comes back with the mob and betrays Jesus. And notice, he's drank from the cup of judgment, but he hasn't drank from the cup of redemption. The cup of sanctification, the cup of judgment, the cup of redemption, the third cup, and then the cup of praise, the fourth cup, which has a promise associated with it. The promise, I will take you to be my people. Judas has not drank of the cup of redemption, only the cup of judgment. I think Jesus would have come back to the traditional teaching on the Passover table, which is that the bitter herbs represent the bitterness that the children of Israel endure, endured as slaves in Egypt. And everybody would have taken a piece of bread, dipped it in the bitter mixture, Jesus would have recited a traditional prayer, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kichanu b'mitzvotzav ve'tzivanu al achilat moroah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us and commanded us concerning the eating of the bitter herbs. And then everybody at the table would have taken and eaten the bitter herbs. Wow. I was telling Jennifer, by the way, Jennifer did a great job putting this together, and she deserves a round of applause. I hope the horseradish is spicy so it opens up my nasal cavities a little bit. Now, following the bitter is the sweet. And could you all see that brown mixture? That's a very sweet mixture made with apples, walnuts, grape juice, honey, and cinnamon, all mashed together and then left out to turn brown so that it resembles mud or the mortar that the children of Israel had to make as slaves in Egypt. Their jobs as slaves were terrible. The Egyptians are called strict taskmasters. They would get up before the sun rose And my guess is they took the guys with the biggest feet, like me, size 14, and took them to these mud pits, and then they would mix mud and straw together, just like this, all day. They would be poured into molds. The molds would be left to harden in the sun, and that's how they made the bricks that were used to build the cities of the pharaohs. I go to Israel every year. In fact, I just got back a couple weeks ago, and... Some of the ruins you'll go to, you'll see bricks, and you'll actually see dry straw sticking out of the bricks. That goes back thousands of years. That's how they made the bricks. It was a hard life. It was a terrible life. Why would it be represented by something 
so sweet tasting. You would almost expect another bitter mixture, but yet it's very sweet. The answer is that in the midst of the harshness of their lives, the children of Israel believed in the promise of God. God promised deliverance. And in the midst of all of that harshness and all of the hard life, the promise of deliverance left a sweet taste in their mouth. I think the New Testament application for us is clear. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. That deserves an amen. I mean, life is hard, isn't it? But Jesus himself said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We have the promises of God in the midst of the difficulties of life to rely upon. Promises like he will never leave us or forsake us. Promises like God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And my personal favorite, the one that says he'll never give us more than we're able to bear with. Sometimes I think he overestimates me, but that's another story. Do the promises of God leave a sweet taste in your mouth? They should. So what happens next, there's actually no prayer in this part. The piece of bread is dipped in a sweet mixture. And everybody at the table would eat. This is a hard-boiled egg. I don't know if you could tell, but this was dipped in coffee or tea to make it brown. The reason for that is the egg represents the sacrifice. The sacrifice to the children of Israel was life. It's what kept them right with God. And there was a whole system of sacrifices that were constantly going on. So the fact that the sacrifice represented life, uh, the egg is a wonderful illustration of life. So on each Passover table is a hard-boiled brown egg or an egg dipped in uh, coffee or tea. Why brown? Because you see, as the sacrifices were made, they would be roasted. And the priest and his family and the one making the sacrifice and his family would have a communal meal together. So, therefore, the egg is brown. Now, we used to tell people to roast the egg. And you know, anybody know how to roast an egg? Well, in the old days when there were gas ovens, it was pretty easy because you'd stick the egg under the flame. The problem with that is we left a minor detail out. You need to pierce the egg so that it could vent out. Because, you see, if you don't do that, you know what happens? God has made the egg into an amazing creation, and it will expand, but only to a certain point. And as the egg begins to grow, the shell will not be able to hold it, and it will blow up like a little hand grenade in the oven. And for those of you kids, don't try this at home and say the big Jewish guy told me to do it. <laughs> so we stopped telling church secretaries to roast eggs because we were getting some frantic calls about these exploding eggs. So now we're back to a brown egg. And so now you know why the egg is brown. But more importantly, I want you to try to envision yourself living at the time of the temple. Try to imagine what it was like. Uh, nowadays, when you go to Israel, you know, have you ever seen the picture of that golden dome? That's called the Dome of the Rock. That sits on top of the Temple Mount. 
The Temple Mount is actually Mount Moriah. If you have ever read the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it's thought that that's where that sacrifice took place. And actually, if you go even further north on Mount Moriah, you come to Golgotha. So I think that's actually where Abraham was sacrificing Isaac. That being said, in Islam, it's believed that there's a rock where Abraham brought Ishmael. Everybody hear that? Ishmael to be sacrificed. And they built everything around that rock. And then King Hussein of Jordan actually, within the last 40 years, with his own personal money, put all of that gold leaf around it. And that's what we have now sitting on the Temple Mount plus the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So there's no temple up there. But back at the time of the first and second temple, all that would have been there was the temple. And Herod expanded it, and those walls, the western wall was, was a retaining wall that he used to expand the Temple Mount. And it's a huge expanse. If you go up there and see, you can see literally millions of people can fit up there. What am I getting at? Well, try to imagine you're walking near the temple. Take a deep breath, and there's a stench in the air. A stench of death. A constant killing of animals and the smell of burning flesh. It's horrible. It's a reminder of God's abhorrence of sin. But now let's take it a step further. You've committed a sin and you want to deal with it. You don't want to wait till the Day of Atonement when all the sins for the previous year would be covered. And for that moment, all Israel was saved just for a brief moment. Instead, you want to deal with it. Take care of your relationship with God. So you bring a prescribed sacrifice. Let's say a goat. You bring it to the priest at the temple in Jerusalem. That was the only place it could be brought. Wherever you lived, you had to go to Jerusalem. The priest takes the, the animal from you, binds the legs, holds the animal, and you are instructed to place your right hand on the animal's head. And as you did that, you confessed your sin. So follow what's going on. Your sin now sort of transfers to the animal. The animal now is your sin bearer. It's bearing your sin. The priest then takes out a very sharp knife. And with your right hand on the animal's head, he hands you in your other hand the knife. And you cut the animal's throat. And that animal bleeds to death and dies. And the instruction is clear. That animal died because of your sin. He died, in fact, as a substitute. All of that system intended to point people forward to when Jesus would hang on that cross to be the final sacrifice. And again, we read, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus literally bore the sins of all mankind on His shoulders when He died on the cross. something that you would expect an Israelite wouldn't want to do a second time. But how many of us are so comfortable doing things that we know are wrong in spite of the fact that Jesus had to die because of those things? That's what the egg is a reminder of. This last element would not have been at the Last Supper. It's on every traditional Passover table today. 
And the reason it wouldn't have been at the Last Supper is because at the Last Supper, the Passover lamb would have been slain and the meal that they would have had would have been the lamb. But there's no temple today. The temple was destroyed in the year 70 A.D., almost 2,000 years ago. So instead, there's this bone. It happens to be a shank bone of a lamb. And the reason it's there is that it's a reminder to every Jewish home that there's no temple. We know that Ezekiel wrote that there's going to be a temple that the Messiah will stand in. And for Jewish people with a messianic hope, and I come across many who believe in a Messiah, they think that that's the coming of the Messiah. But for us, I think it should break your heart. It's a reminder that there are Jewish people all over the world, down here in South Florida, who are waiting for a Messiah who's already come. Who came to be the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Who's coming again as the King of kings and Lord of lords and will stand in that temple in Jerusalem one day. But that's not the next temple. The next temple is what's called the Tribulation Temple. And that's the temple that not the Messiah, but the Anti-Messiah, the Antichrist, will stand in. Demand himself to be worshipped as God and desecrate the temple in what's called the abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to from the book of Daniel. And it says he will put an end to sacrifice. So interestingly enough, it's believed for those who hold to this third temple that the sacrificial system will actually be reinstituted for a short time. That's what this is a reminder of. So we have now finished the, uh, the first part of the Passover. And what comes next is an actual meal. How many of you have ever had matzo ball soup? You live in South Florida. If you haven't had it, you have to try it. You should go to, to a, a nice deli and try it. So matzo ball soup is now in a big, big kettle cooking right now. Could you smell it? Take a deep breath. I need you to use your imaginations here. It's cooking up. And the meal is not going to be lamb. The tradition today in most Jewish homes is lamb is not served. Now there are still Jewish people, primarily from the, Med- from the Mediterranean area, uh, and there we have, they're called Sephardic Jews, and we have a number of them in South Florida who still eat lamb. But the Jews from Europe who emigrated to Europe, like my, my family, will have chicken or turkey or something like this. Probably not fish, like Da Vinci portrayed. But anyway, there's a meal going on. And typically when I do this at a banquet, that's the time that I talk about Chosen People Ministries. So we're going to take a little brief interlude while you're having your meal. Just enjoy the soup. Smell it. It really, really smells good. And I'd like you to do me a favor and take these out. You should have all received one as you came in. And you only need one per family. (coughs) Anybody not have one? Okay, there's a bunch over here. The ushers could give them out. So while they're 
giving those out, let me share with you what's on the book table, and then we'll go back to the brochure. On the book table, my wife Julie will be in the back uh, by the door. There's a number of books, but there's a couple that I want to make note of. This is a booklet, and a lot of times I'm asked the question, do you have this in a book anywhere, what I'm doing? And what I'm doing actually is an abbreviated version of the Passover, even though this is taking a while. And this will give you a way to celebrate Passover with your family. The first night of Passover is actually coming up tomorrow night. So if you would want to celebrate Passover with your family, if you would want to sound like a Hebrew scholar because all the Hebrew prayers are written out, transliterated in English, you could do that. And this is a wonderful resource to celebrate Passover. And Passover is intended to be family. Okay? Next... This is a book that I wrote. This is on the three most important chapters of of the book of Romans to understand God's plan for Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is called The Heart of the Apostle. And the reason for the title is we see Paul's heart in these three chapters. It begins in chapter 9. He has unceasing grief in his heart for his brethren according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul's heart is broken because his Jewish brethren have not accepted the Messiah. And just to throw out a statistic to you, in this world there are about 15 million Jewish people. Of the 15 million, only about 1% are professing believers in Jesus. So 99% of the Jewish people, 99%, not only do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah, but believe that he's the reason for all of their problems as a people group. It's all payback for the Christ killers. And I was called Christ killer growing up in Brooklyn. So this is a book that I would recommend. If you get my book, I would be happy to sign it for you so you would have the author's signature and then it becomes more valuable. And and when you finish, you could sell it on eBay and make lots of money. Someone at one of my church meetings came up to me and said, I got your book and sold it on eBay for $3. Maybe you could get four, who knows? But all kidding aside, I think you'll find this book very helpful. Any of you heard of Joel Rosenberg, the writer? He's a Jewish believer. Uh, he's a novelist. If you like thriller novels, I would highly recommend his novels. But he's written a number of nonfiction books that we feel very strongly about, mostly on the Middle East. And this is a book, Epicenter, that's based on his prophecy in Ezekiel, uh, based on the prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that talks about an alliance that seems to be speaking about Russia, Iran, and some nations that would be radical Islamic nations. That sounds like right out of current events. And Joel does a great job describing this and connecting it to biblical prophecy. He wrote a book called Inside the Revolution. And he also wrote a book, uh, unfortunately we only have one copy left today. So the first one to the table who buys the book, God bless you. You can even beat my wife to the table. It's called Implosion. It's his newest book. and uh, it's, it's a major bestseller on Amazon. And I think you'll find it very helpful. So that, that's Joel's book. And then you've heard me talk about Isaiah 53. And we have a book called The Gospel According to Isaiah 53 that's geared towards believers. It's a very in-depth study with some of the top Christian scholars in the world talking about a very important chapter written seven centuries before Jesus walked on the earth, the clearest presentation of the gospel. But we have a book 
geared towards unbelievers. And it's called Isaiah 53 Explained. And there's a couple of things you need to know about Isaiah 53. Number one, there are readings in the synagogue that happen all year. Isaiah 53 is never read. It's skipped. They actually go from Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52, where it stops talking, uh, where it starts talking about the Messiah. I think 52.12 is where it begins. So it stops at 52.11 and picks up at 54.1. It's never read. Jewish people are not familiar with Isaiah 53. They have no conception of it. And the rabbis teach that it's just merely speaking about the Jewish people themselves and the, and the suffering that they would go through as a people group. So there is an education process that we have to, to try to get our, our books into the hands of the Jewish community. And we want to use you, our Christian friends, to do that. So we're going to offer this book to you as a gift, but here's what you need to do. Everybody take out these brochures. You should all have one by now and open them up. Okay, just like this. And again, you only need one per family. And what we're going to do now is an ancient Jewish tradition. Would you all like to do an ancient Jewish tradition with me? I can't hear you. I still can't hear you. Okay. It's called the tearing of the brochure. So don't tear it yet. Fold it a couple of times. And then at the count of three, we're going to tear it together. And if you do this right, it's going to make a really neat sound. Everybody ready? Here we go. You didn't listen. The count of three. One, two, three. Much better. So here's what you're left with. This is for you to keep. This is all about Chosen People Ministries, and we are now in 17 countries around the world, and there is some biographical information about my wife and I. This is an involvement card, and here's what we need you to do. We are in the midst of trying to build a, a center in Palm Beach County. Uh, we are in Boynton Beach, and... There's much work to do. There are three-quarters of a million Jewish people in the three southern counties of Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade. Three-quarters of a million. And as you are probably aware, the majority of them are over the age of 65. So we have a sense of urgency, don't you think? So here's what I need you to do. We need you to be part of our prayer team. This is a way for you to do this. If you fill this out, You'll receive a monthly prayer letter that my wife and I send out every month. We are missionaries. We've been down here in South Florida for 14 years. And we are a ministry that is support-raised. We are constantly raising our, our, our funds to do ministry and to, to live. And this is how we do it, primarily through speaking in churches and, and developing a network of prayer warriors as an incentive for you to be part of our prayer team, here's what we want to do. We normally sell this book for $10. And if you want to buy it for $10, you're welcome to do that. But if you fill this out and bring it to my wife, Julia, at the book table, she will give you a free copy of the book Isaiah 53 Explained. Just by telling us, guys, we're going to be praying for you. We believe in what you're doing. So fill this out. 
And as you can see, there's a place if you, you feel led to give to the ministry, and Pastor will talk about the, the offering for the ministry later on, but if you feel led to do that, uh, there's a place for you to indicate your gift to the ministry, and there's a number of ways you can give as well. Can you turn this over just for briefly for a, a moment? There's a couple of things I want to make mention of. See the top line? Tell me about short-term opportunities with Chosen People Ministries. We do two kinds of short-term missions trip. One is for all ages, and it happens every summer in New York City, primarily in Brooklyn. We now call it Shalom Brooklyn. And if you would want to go to New York City, New York City has the largest population of Jewish people of any major city in the world, including Jerusalem. About 25% of New York City is Jewish. So if we put you out on the streets with our teams and you speak to people, the likelihood it is one out of every four about is going to be Jewish. And you could be insulted by some of the most well-known Jewish people in, in all of New York City. Just kidding. I mean, some very, very positive conversations, and, and we certainly have seen people come to faith uh, through these mission trips. The other mission trip is geared towards young people, and that's three weeks in Israel, and it is really roughing it. So I would say 30 and under if you're interested in that one, and uh, indicate that by checking that top box, and we'll get information to you. And a few boxes down, see where it says, tell me about your ministry tours to Israel. That's a way for you to come to Israel on our tour. That's a little less roughing it. We go to five-star hotels and use air-conditioned buses and uh, have a great time in Israel. And my next trip is going to be the fall of 2014. Not this year, but next year. So you have 18 months to plan. And if you would be interested in coming to Israel with us, uh, we have an incentive for your pastor. If five of you sign up to come to Israel with us, Pastor Brian can come for free. If 10 of you sign up, if 10 of you sign up, he can bring his lovely wife. So, and I just did a trip. There were five pastors on my trip. So it's, it's a wonderful way to get pastors to Israel. And I promise you, I'm sure Pastor Brian is a great preacher. If he comes to Israel, he'll be even a greater preacher. So uh, be sure to, to check that box. And the last thing I want you to notice, you see where it says my Jewish friend? If you have the name and address of a Jewish person that you'd like us to send the book Isaiah 53 Explained, just fill that out. We will send them anonymously the book and a letter introducing them to the claims of Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Okay? So be sure to bring this to the book table to get the free book. Or if you'd rather just leave it uh, in the offering plate with your offering, that would be fine. So we're finished with the meal. How was the matzo ball soup? It was great. How was the chicken? Good? And... The dessert is usually something called macaroons. Have any of you ever had macaroons? They're great. Publix does great macaroons. And once dessert is finished, something very interesting happens. And it's a new, fairly recent tradition. The children then search for the afikoman. Remember the afikoman? That was the second of the three-in-one that we broke, we wrapped up in a cloth, we buried. It's now going to be resurrected. But before... 
the children diligently search for it. We don't put it under the tablecloth. Usually hide it in a good place, play a game of hot and cold, and the one who finds it actually gets a reward. Think of the picture. What happens? The, the scripture says, if you seek me as you would seek after hidden treasure, you will surely find me. And what happens when we find the Lord? We receive the greatest reward of all, the gift of eternal life. So the afikoman is found. It's brought back. And it's resurrected. It's taken out. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now what would Jesus have said? God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food? No. He would have prayed a beautiful Hebrew prayer. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. Where was Jesus born? A little town of? In Hebrew, Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Jesus and bread have always been connected. I am the bread of life, he said. So he takes now this bread, give thanks for bringing forth bread from the earth. He doesn't say thanking God for creating it, just for bringing it forth. And it says when he had given thanks, he broke it. He would have distributed it to everyone at the table. And then he would have said this, take, eat, this is my body. This second of the three in one, unleavened representing sinlessness, striped, pierced, broken, Wrapped up, buried, resurrected. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And everybody at the table would have eaten the afikoman. Now, everybody know what a Berean is? They're more noble-minded because what do they do? They search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. The fact that I said he ate the afikoman should not be enough for you to convince you. You need to hear it from the Scripture. And here's why I believe it's the afikoman. Paul says this, In the same way or in the same manner, <coughs> he also took the cup after supper. He took the bread after supper, which is the afikoman, now he takes the cup after supper, which is the cup of redemption. And he says this. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is he saying? In the same way that the first Passover lamb redeemed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, so now my shed blood will also redeem you from slavery to sin. This is the cup of redemption. This is what we remember when we celebrate communion together. He would have raised the cup as he had already done and prayed a traditional prayer. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everyone say amen. We take the cup of redemption.
The fourth cup is called the cup of praise. And there's a promise attached to it from Exodus chapter 6. The promise is, I will take you to be my people. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew gives us some interesting information about the third cup. He says this. He says, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But listen to this. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What Matthew was telling us was Jesus drank the third cup, but he didn't drink the fourth cup. And the reason he didn't drink the fourth cup is the promise attached to it. I will take you to be my people. The fourth cup would not be fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, but rather at his second coming. The prophet Zechariah writes, they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. As Jesus, his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah writes, the people of Israel alive at the time will recognize him, see the nail scars in his hands and feet, and turn to him to be their Messiah, Savior, and Lord. So the fulfillment takes place at his second coming. Do we drink the fourth cup? What do you think? Who says yes? Raise your hand. Who says no? Who says I have no intention of voting? (laughs) The answer is yes. We have inaugurated the new covenant. We are new covenant, New Testament believers. And we can take this cup of praise because we are indeed the people of God. But there is going to come a time. There's going to come a time when this will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming. So the final time, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam borei peri Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everyone say amen. That's the fourth cup. One last thing to do. See that little cup and place setting? That's for Elijah. Elijah is an invited guest to every Passover around the world. Why is that? Because the prophet Malachi said before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come as his forerunner announcing his coming. Jesus said if Israel would have believed the first time he came, then John the Baptist would have fulfilled that prophecy coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. But because they didn't, we look to future fulfillment. Many Bible scholars believe Elijah will be one of the two witnesses in Revelation before Jesus' second coming. So what happens is the children go to look for Elijah. And I remember as a seven, eight-year-old boy, my uncle lived on a, in a two-family house with some very, very dark stairs. And he told me to go open the front door and see if this 2,500-year-old man with a long white beard was waiting to come in. And he described him sort of like from the mummy movies that Boris Karloff was in. And as I was walking down the steps, I just kept saying over and over again, please don't be there, please don't be there, please don't be there. And I opened the door, and there was nobody there. So I went back upstairs, said to my uncle, there's nobody there. And my uncle's response was kind of a melancholy response. He said, maybe next year in Jerusalem. 
And unfortunately, that's going to be the refrain all around the world, maybe next year in Jerusalem. Because you see, once again, a reminder that my people are waiting for a Messiah who's already come. And one day is coming again. That should break your heart. But next year in Jerusalem, for we who are believers, should be with a shout of victory, don't you think? A reminder that one day we're going to reign with him and be in the new Jerusalem. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to conclude by teaching you how to say next year in Jerusalem in Hebrew. And then we're going to say it in English together with a bit of exuberance. You think you could do that for me? Okay. So here, first in Hebrew, first word, Lashana. Second word, Haba'ah. And the third word, a little harder, Yerushalayim. Now try it together. Lashana, Haba'ah, Yerushalayim. Lashana, Haba'ah, Yerushalayim. Now you. Not bad. Okay, now. Listen carefully. You didn't do a good job with the tearing of the brochure, so hopefully you do better with this. At the count of three, together, as though the Dolphins have just won the Super Bowl, we're going to sing. Yeah, that's, that is pretty funny, actually. But we're going to sing, shout, next year in Jerusalem. Could you do that with me? With a real sense of exuberance, because it's victory. Here we go. One, two, three. What do you think? You think that was, I thought that was so-so. Let's try it again. Some exuberance. You're going to be spending eternity with Jesus in the New Jerusalem. I want to hear a shout. So here we go. One, two, three. That was good. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this picture of redemption that you've left for us. Redemption by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord for your great love for us, and that even while we were yet sinners, our Messiah died for us to give us eternal life. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death for us. And we look forward to remembering his resurrection one week from today. So Lord, we thank you for your great faithfulness, your great love. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet asked Jesus to be their Passover lamb, reminding them that just as the first Passover, the Israelites had to apply the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their houses, that now all of us personally need to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of our hearts. I pray if there's anyone here who needs to make that personal application of what Jesus did when he died for their sins and rose from the dead, that even now you would be speaking to their hearts. If you're here today and you would want to do that, I'm going to say a short prayer as we conclude and all you have to do is just repeat after me. You don't even have to say it out loud. God will hear you. But if you would want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, just pray this prayer. Dear God, I realize that I'm not perfect. I also realize that makes me a sinner. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he did so for me, for my sins. So today I personally apply what Jesus did to my heart, to my life, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And I thank you, God, for loving me. 
And I thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.